On the Sabbath, we went outside the city gate to the river, where we expected to find a place of prayer. We sat down and began speaking, to speak to the women who had gathered there. One of those listening was a woman from the city of Thericia, uh, named Lydia, a dealer in purple garments. She was a worshiper of God, and the Lord opened her heart to respond to Paul's message. And when she, uh, when she and the number of her household were baptized, she invited us to her home. If you consider me a believer in the Lord, she said, come and stay at my house. And she persuaded us. Once, when we were going to a place of prayer, we were met by a female slave who had a spirit by which she predicted the future. She earned a great deal of money for her owners by fortune-telling. She followed Paul and the rest of us, shouting, These men are servants of the Most High God who are telling you the way to be saved. She kept this up for many days. Finally, Paul became so annoyed that he turned around and said to the spirit, In the name of Jesus Christ, I command you to come out of her. At that moment, the spirit left her. When her owners realized that their hope of making money was gone, they seized Paul and Silas and dragged them into the marketplace to face the authorities. They brought them before the magistrates and said, These men are Jews and are throwing our city into an uproar by advocating customs unlawful for us Romans to accept or practice. The crowd joined the attack against Paul and Silas, and the magistrates ordered them to be stripped and beaten with rods. After they had been severely flogged, they were thrown into prison, and the jailer commanded to guard them carefully. When he received these orders, he put them in the inner cell and fastened their feet in the stocks. About midnight, Paul and Silas were praying and singing hymns to God, and the other prisoners were listening to them. Suddenly, there was such a violent earthquake that the foundations of the prison were shaken. At once, all the prison doors flew open, and everyone's chains came loose, and the jailer woke up, and when he saw that the prison doors were open, he drew his sword and was about to kill himself because he thought the prisoners had escaped. But Paul shouted, don't harm yourself, we're all here. The jailer called for lights, rushed in and fell trembling before Paul and Silas. He then brought them out and asked, sirs, what must I do to be saved? And they replied, believe in the Lord Jesus and you will be saved, you and your household. Then they spoke the word of God to him and to all the others in his house. At that hour of the night, the jailer took them and washed their wounds. And then immediately he and all his household were baptized. The jailer brought them into his house and set a meal before them. And he was filled with joy because he had come to believe in God, he and his whole household. This is God's word. The, uh, the first place the gospel comes that you might not expect is uh, the marketplace and this prominent businesswoman. Uh, the, the story in the beginning kind of hinges around this lady, Lydia. Uh, she was a, an influential uh, merchant. When it says that she dealt in purple dyes, it meant that she was like someone deep within the fashion industry who would take plain, ordinary garments, and she likely had tons of people working for her, and they would submerge those garments into dye, making them regal and of incredible value, and so she, she dealt in the spaces of the very, the very fancy and the very elite. Uh, she's like a, you know, like a Chanel and a Gucci, kind of like that, that kind of level that she was playing. This isn't like Old Navy garment selling, right? Uh, which, when I was a kid, I thought Old Navy was elite. My parents did a really good job. Just now our kids think Target's elite, so we're all winning. 
Target, exactly. But that's the kind of things that she did. Uh, her work would have been really busy. Uh, she would have been kind of important. Uh, and she would have been cultured, hardworking, all of these things. Uh, the kind of person that doesn't have time to just sort of sit around and think about new thoughts and interpret new messages. She had places to go, people to, to see. In fact, many would, would uh, kind of infer that what she was doing when they began to speak the gospel to her is out networking and talking to other people doing a similar business. And she's out there in that kind of space, and then Paul and Silas come with Luke and saw probably several others and sit down and begin to talk to her. Uh, they said, maybe we'll find some people that fear God over here. Uh, they slowed down long enough to listen. Uh, they spoke words to her, and she believed the gospel. I think what's really amazing after that uh, is not only does it make it clear that the gospel belongs uh, with, with people like that. I think sometimes we're like, well, the gospel's kind of for people who uh, are kind of struggling through life uh, and and my boss and the industry that I'm in, they're too busy and they have too many important things and they've gone to too much schooling and they're too uh, advanced in this world. Like they're so far from God, like the gospel probably won't really connect to them. And this story says, no, no, the message of, of the gospel completely hits their hearts. Uh, the most influential person in this whole story, the story of this church of Philippi that became kind of this bastion and cornerstone church in the ancient world, the, the kind of most influential person at the center of that story is this lady. Uh, it's not a priest, it's not a preacher, it's a business person. And it's a head of a household. And when it says that, uh, we sometimes we're like, oh yeah, like our thousand square foot houses, like that's, that's what he's talking about. No, they're talking about a, a household was this huge estate with dozens of dozens of people working under it, and she was in charge of it, and she was running it like a, like a corporation, like a campus of work. Like, that's what she was in charge of. And she says, no, no, come here to my estate, my place of enterprise, and I want you to stay here uh, because I believe in the Lord, and so I want you to stay here, and I want you to start a church here. Uh, the, the church starting in Philippi has so much to do with her and her vision for her city and for her place. Uh, the kingdom belongs among the entrepreneurs. Uh, the kingdom of God belongs among the corporate. Uh, it belongs in our universities. It belongs in our places where we deal, our firms, our uh, new businesses, our tech companies. It belongs there. It's not just for temples or for buildings. In fact, the gospel uh, advances through people like Lydia so much more than it often advances through people like me. Uh, see, the truth is some of us are called to be leaders within the church. That's a great thing. Like, and some of us are called to be leaders in the city. In fact, the people that are called to be leaders in the church are really servants who've been called uh, to serve those who lead in the city. Paul and Silas, from that moment on, were in her service for her sake, for her city. Like, that's what happens. Uh, one of the most influential people in my life is this man named Kent Humphreys. He started and sold uh, lots and lots of multi-million dollar companies, a serial entrepreneur that scaled things really large. Uh, he's, you know, one of those people that made, you know, tons of money through Walmart, like that kind of person. But the way he influenced my life was he came and he spoke at our business school, 
I'm a, I got a degree in business. There it is. Now you know. International business, which meant I took a test in Portuguese and Spanish and took a couple extra classes. That's how I got there. Anyway, uh, he came to talk to us business students, and he wrote this book called Shepherding Horses. And the idea of that book is that he was a person that felt like everything that he was doing in life was called by God to do it. Uh, he, he saw like the businesses that he ran, the way that he interacted with them, the way he bought businesses and dealt with people, that God was calling and speaking him to do all those things. I've never really met a person, uh, except for maybe his son, who's also highly influential in my life, who really heard and listened to the Spirit of God and like practical, tangible things. And this book that he wrote, Shepherding Horses, and he and I got uh, lunch several times and coffees, and he would explain this this book to me over and over again, that the, the, the church needs someone to shepherd horses, people who are running the race, who are out there called by God into the city. And he reminded me of Ephesians 4.16, which says uh, that, that God gave gifts to the church, apostles, prophets, evangelists, shepherds, and teachers. Why? For the equipping of the saints. For what? The ministry, right? The ministry of the gospel. And where does that ministry and the work of the gospel happen? It happens out there in the places that you've been sent. And one of the biggest like enemies and temptation things that happens is we think this is the arena or in our living rooms, in our backyards when we're doing DNA or missional community, that is the arena in which God is at work. And that's where the ministry happens. But the truth is, is that you're actually being equipped in this space to go out and do the work of the ministry. And you're all ministers of the gospel. We could uh, write out a whole new W-2s for all of you. Uh, we could stretch the law and make some tax deductions for everybody. But the truth is, you are all ministers of the gospel. And so your work that you have is not a distraction from your kingdom calling. You're like, oh, I'm, it's, oh it's just taking my focus off what God's called me to do. You, uh, you know, I've got to pay my bills, I've got to do this thing, I guess, but then the real work happens in my free time, and that the kingdom of God is my hobby. That's not true. It's not a distraction. It is your kingdom calling. Or you might think your responsibilities are a big detraction from your calling, uh, that it's just something that you have to manage or get through. Like, oh, I guess I just got to parent these kids for a while, and then I can, you know, be one of those, you know, six-year-old people who's really serving the world and living on the mission of God. Or all these things that I have to organize and get through and, and all the studying that I have to do, this phase of my life is just a big detraction from my ultimate calling. But that's not true either. Uh, I, the church we grew up in, Mirella and I, was a church called Grasa, which means grace, but it was really just the part of the city was called Grasa, so that's why it was called that. Uh, but what would happen on Sundays every now and then is the leaders would pull people up front. And maybe we should do this now that I'm saying it out loud. But pull people up and interview them. Sometimes it felt like an interrogation. Like, where do you work? What do you do? Uh, what is your work like? And people would give all of these answers. And then the leaders would put their hands on this. Like, so this lady is being sent as a missionary, uh, a minister of reconciliation into that place. And so let's pray. We prayed for these people, ordinary people, just like us, working in all these different industries, universities, ballet dancers, uh, you know, car mechanics, all sorts of things. And we prayed over them as if we were sending them to Ghana. 
because we thought and we believed that we were. And that's the truth for you. Uh, Lydia is the hero of this story. Our church is full of Lydia's. And you might believe a lie that the gospel does not belong among people like that or that it's too hard, it's too far. But this story says the opposite. That's exactly where the kingdom of God wants to play. Uh, The second thing that we see is that the gospel comes to the city, the dark, unjust city. Uh, There's a story about this female slave. Really what you need to think about is like the exploiters and the exploited. Uh, the slave owner and the slaves. The dynamic that's happening uh, with this young lady is much like a prostitute and a pimp. But something you need to understand for the whole context of the city is that they had these gods and goddesses that they worshiped, that provided for them, and that what was really at the center of it all was the city had these images and temples that provided worship for the city itself. Uh, The way that it worked is, oh, tell us the future because we're at the center of the future, right? Uh, tell us what we need to do because this city is the best city. When it talks about how it was a leading city of the day uh, and of that colony, it was a place of great pride. Like, we have arrived. I'm so glad that we get to be here and we get to listen to these fortune tellers and go to all of these pagan places, and it's so wonderful for us. Like, we are the culture uh, of the day. Uh, And you might think, man, wow, ancient world, so superstitious. So weird, so glad we're rational people now. Uh, The ancient world was a lot like ours, both rational and superstitious, both believing in reason and like Socrates and Plato and Aristotle, and then at the same time believing in Dionysus and these other things. Uh, Just like today, uh, the same like, uh, you know, master's degree educated person uh, over here is also worshiping crystals or reaching out into the universe or looking to Hindu gods, though we're not Hindu, or learning a lot about Norse gods, trying to find insights for us, and yet we're not Norwegian or Scandinavian at all. Reading tarot cards and using it to become like cool uh, Instagram-worthy decorations and interior design, Uh, going to psychics and palm readers. I think it's like just based on the real estate in our part of the city, it's easier to find a palm reader than it is to find a church or a synagogue or something like that. So it's not a joke and it's not benign and it's dark and it's exploitation, it's a lie, it's broken, it's bondage for everyone involved. And the reason that these little things show up in cities like that and cities like ours is because it's so much easier to not worship another God and so much easier to worship something that puts ourselves at the very center of it that all signs in the universe point to me. That feels, I mean, that's like, if you had to make a religion for this city, that is the religion that you would make. Uh, We have a good friend uh, who's a pastor in Portugal, a great musician also, his name's Tiago Cavaco, and he wrote this really good book uh, about cities and how to have faith in the city. Uh, And this is, uh, he captures this whole point really well. He says, cities that base their quality on the simple fact that they are cities, become caskets, not homes. Cities that worship their own abilities and powers are cities that become a religion itself, and their citizens become its converts. It is difficult for us to understand the subversive religious capacity of cities. Xenophobia, those people who aren't us, is the prayer of cities that worship themselves. 
Their gospel is you are saved by being within our walls. You become by being within, and you are lost by being without. You are doomed to weakness, futility, and ignorance outside of it. This type of city has an aggressive plan of conquest that is spoken in the language of pride. As people find themselves superior, not because of anything they've done, but by where they are. Is that true? This, this little, little, little section is like, that's true. It's really true. We live here. We've arrived, you know? It's like, uh, I'm just waiting for Jay-Z to make the L.A. song, because I think they live here now. If you can make it here, you can make it anywhere, uh, which I guess is Frank Sinatra. A whole bunch of people who really didn't make it, really, when you look at the quality. Anyway, the fuel of the city, what makes it work, what makes it thrive, is an acceptance and celebration of things that are really broken. And then we might think, wow, the gospel has no place in a city like that. Like nothing good can come from something there. We should just move on and live in villages. Or maybe we should like put up really big billboards and megaphones and be like, this city's terrible. Let me show you this quote from this Portuguese man. He's super influential in a tiny country no one knows about. How can the gospel come in a place that's making caskets, not homes? But what we see in these words of the scriptures is that cities are graciously disrupted by the gospel. The kingdom sets cities free. I think we so often think the gospel can't possibly come here to Los Angeles or to the city. It's too hard. There's too much at stake. It will never happen. But what happens in this story is that it comes and it comes subversively to the very idols of the city and it breaks all things up. And the, the slave owners instantly know exactly what's happening. Their, their phrase is so good. They say, our hope is gone. Our hope of earning money is now gone. If this message that they're proclaiming and this power that they have is going to set people free, then our hope of our structures is gone. They later, when they uh, take them to the, the marketplace so that they can be beaten and they're advocating, they're saying, these guys are talking a completely different set, a foreign culture, a different way of being, a different way of life. It's going to harm everything that we are as a city. The truth is, if Jesus becomes the hope of the city, the other hopes fade. And that ground is not just given up lightly. The fabric of the city, who's in charge, how things work, are kind of ruined by the gospel when it comes. Uh, and this is what I mean. I'm not talking like pitchforks and like crusades, though I get that the language I'm using is like that. The message of Jesus, though, turns things upside down. If, because it says this, that you're saved by the sacrifice and the love of Jesus. You're not saved by where you live. You're not saved by what neighborhood you live in. Your security doesn't come from that. You could live in any part of this city and your security doesn't come from the, the, the street address that you have. And that, man, that is not good for the real estate industry. The gospel says that you are uh, positioned humbly before God that offers you undying love so you don't have to strive to gain pride to be loved. That kind of shifts things dramatically. You're renewed and marked not by 
where you live or what you can contribute or what you can make, but you're marked and renewed by the outpouring of God's love for you that you just receive. Uh, You belong because God has adopted you into the family and it's centered all around him. It's not that you belong because you've been able to make almost enough money to live here. You become a citizen of Jesus' kingdom and it's a kingdom of mercy and justice and grace and peace and love. And so you exist within this city, not submitting to it, but subversively knowing that you belong to a different kingdom. Uh, It also, it kind of unfolds things like this, like you must earn it and hustle as a motivational tactic doesn't really work if the city receives grace. Uh, You and your work and your financial success and you kind of thinking, oh, my only hope is if I can build and build and build, that kind of fades away when you say, all my hope is in Christ alone. The, the statements that we have in our city that you must look inward and discover and then maintain your own identity will crumble under the weight of a God, the creator saying from the outside to you, no, your identity is my beloved. You are my daughter. You are my son. You are my friend. If people are healed and made whole and restored to the image of God, and if people are... Re- transformed into worshipers of God, and then they use all their skills and creativity and their abilities to worship God, then the existing powers of this city kind of begin to shift dramatically. And so there's pushback, lots and lots of pushback. It's pushback because that city knew what sometimes we forget. We think, ah, like, uh, maybe we can just the gospel can provide this nice little tweak, a little addition. I remember sharing vision for the church that we're planting in Portland, and I said, it's so terrible. I can't believe they let me continue into the mic. But I said, like, Portland's a really good, wonderful city. It's almost perfect. They just don't know Jesus. So if we could just add the Jesus part, and everything else stays the same. And I was like, what was I? Th-? I mean, it was kind of crazy. Leslie Newbegin, an English uh, missionary to India, and then later a missionary to the Western world, he says this. The gospel calls for a dramatic conversion, not just of will, emotion, or feeling, but of mind and belief on what was, what is, what is coming. And it leads to a dramatic new vision of what is. The gospel does not come to the city as a minor tweak. So despite everything that you hear, or maybe everything that you experience when you're in the places that God has sent you, the gospel belongs here. And it comes and it changes everything. Lastly, there's this dead end part, the jail. Uh, the jail is the bottom of the city. And this jailer knows that he's supposed to do something. These guys are really bad. So he takes them to the very inner cell, deep down within this dungeon. And then he locks up their arms and their legs and they're, they're stuck there. You know, And I think you could say, well, the gospel is absolutely not moving from this point. Like that is the dead end. That is the cul-de-sac. Finally, the gospel is contained. The kingdom can't come anymore. If it is, it's gonna have to come through other people in some other place. But the foundations of the earth shook and the gospel kept going. It kept going. 
Uh, the lights went out, people were ready to kill themselves, and yet they cried out, don't harm yourself. From the pit, from the dungeon, from where there's no light coming in at all, the ground shook, and a man who was in charge of making sure that they would die down there says, how can I be saved? The free person who could roam and be in charge says, how can I be saved? I want to be saved. And the gospel comes to the jailer's house, his whole household, and then more households and more households, and the, and the kingdom cannot be stopped in this city. It cannot be contained. That is good news. And you might think, man, Brad, that is so lovely. And I hope maybe you're thinking big picture about Los Angeles, and you're like, yeah, there's like really good, meaningful stuff here. Uh, and, I, and I think that that's really good. But the truth is, is that how the gospel moves through cities is also how the gospel moves through you. The gospel comes as a word, as a message, like it did to Lydia, a message of salvation. That's how it comes to you. And you need to hear that regularly, right? The gospel also uh, makes physical change, providing healing and wholeness and transformation, just like it did to the slave girl. The gospel also, Jesus comes into your life as disruption, that, that he is going to push out all other hopes in your life. There will be nothing else that you're going to cling to because he's disrupting it all. Uh, he comes into your life in areas where you think, if that changes, if Jesus changes that part of me, who will I be? Who will I be if I become secure because I need my insecurity to drive me? Who will I be if I'm free of, of needing other people's affections? Because that's what makes me likable, right? You feel it inside and the gospel comes even to areas where you think, I don't want it there. The gospel comes with courage, it comes with consequences, it comes holistically, and Jesus comes to you without constraint. You cannot segment him into some small part of your life. He comes for all of it. There is no quarantine available. And so what can we do today? The very end when it's, he calls out and he says, I want to be saved, is the posture that we get to hold. Lord, save me, save my whole household. Jesus, I want your kingdom here within me. And the very last lines are so beautiful. The jailer brought them to his house. He set a meal for them. And then it says, the jailer was filled with joy. Why? Because he had come to believe in God. So come and let's take communion. Let's confess that we need to be saved, that we need Jesus in every part of our lives and experience and be filled with joy. Let's pray. Jesus, we thank you for your gospel coming uh, to us, disrupting our lives. And I pray that uh, it would fill us with hope and with joy. Uh, let us see new lines drawn for where we think the gospel uh, is required and where it can flourish. Surprise us in this church uh, on where your message takes hold. Thank you so much, Jesus, for all that you are. Amen.